Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we return to the subject of data and data as a strategic asset and by organizations classifying it as such, how that changes the nature of data's treatment and the opportunity that sits around it. Data has always been the lifeblood of the commodities sector, yet new technologies are unlocking exponential amounts of new data, and much of that data is getting democratised. How organisations capture their own data and build a competitive advantage through that is our story today. Our guest is Jason Vogt. Jason is a veteran Cargill trader who's run hedge funds within the organisation and outside, and now leads Cargill Data Asset Solutions, which is taking data one step further by partnering with external organisations to drive value for them. Also, on February 22nd in London, we have our latest HC Insider podcast live event, this time hosted by Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. We'll be discussing the trading future of critical metals. Tickets are free but limited, so please RSVP. I'll put the links in the show notes if you wish to attend. As always, you can really support the show by leaving a positive review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me, Paul. We are talking about data, and specifically we're talking about data as a strategic asset. And this is a story that in some parts goes back to the the very early days of commodity trading, but actually how data and information has risen in importance, and some organizations have truly recognized that, and is now a key driver of strate- of value, and is a key strategic asset for those organizations, and is starting to inform not only, obviously, trading decisions, but even the types of assets and infrastructure an organization builds. And there's a, there's a key reason why we're talking to you uh, of Cargill for this, as one of those firms has been on the, on the leading edge of this. Let's let's I guess start at the beginning and just acknowledge that you know data has always been or, or the edge around data and information has always been the lifeblood of commodity traders. Can you just give us some sense of of why that is and, and how it manifests? Yeah, I, I just would make the broad statement also that data that is meaningful today is largely similar to data that was meaningful in the past. And uh, and by that, I I don't mean that the means and the methods for collecting, organizing, analyzing, and transmitting data are the same. I'm actually uh, telling you that's not the case. Those those means and methods are are very, very different. But the actual underlying data in our markets, in our markets, let's talk about commodity markets, I'll specifically pick on the corn market, data that matters to try to forecast price in the volatility in the corn market is really similar today to what it was previously. So fundamental trading organization, you're going to care about supply data and demand data. In supply data, probably the most important is weather data. That's weather data that has occurred and weather that's forecasted. So data in that area is really important to help you judge production, bushel per acre yields that are going to affect supply. In the demand area, data on a, both a micro and a macro level are really important to anticipate price and volatility. 
uh, on a micro level, the change of ownership. So who is buying, who is selling the data around uh, volumes, transaction price at, at a micro level, still really important in trying to anticipate price movements. And then the macro piece of that would be global trade flows. That is countries of surplus shipping to areas of deficit, the trade flows that occur there. And more importantly, the data around who is a part of those transactions, volumes, price, all of those are really important today and they've been really important for decades and decades. And so I can tell you that that data is unchanged. The means and the methods, uh, if you're willing, I've got some examples, maybe entertaining examples on how uh, that's, that's changed today versus in the past. Yes, please. Yeah. So my dad was a commodity merchant back in the 1970s, all the way through the 2000s. So he's given me uh, an earful of stories about the good old days in commodity markets. And so I've got a couple of those examples. Uh, I guess I'll ask you first, have you heard of the Telex wire system? Yes, you know, but refresh me. Uh, yeah, in the in the seventies and eighties, the telex wire system was just an analog messaging system, and the reason that it was used was merchants and traders could communicate to multiple uh, locations. They could speak with multiple colleagues in different offices, and so the, the term wire, what it actually meant, and I'm not making this up, a merchant or a trader would handwrite a message. And then a colleague would come over, take the handwritten message, and they would go type it into this telex wire system. Once it's typed into the system, it would be transmitted to multiple offices. So that was called a wire, the, the, the message that was communicated and received, that was a wire. And uh, my dad also told me that there was a run wire, which apparently was an even more important wire and the reason it was called the run wire was the colleague who picked up the message needed to be running. It was important enough that they were actually running to pick up the message and then to, to transmit it. So an example of a piece of data from that time would have been if a location was receiving uh, more rain or precipitation than was anticipated, they would likely have uh, a run wire that would be sent explaining what was happening in their location and then a conversation uh, a dialogue digital dialogue about pricing strategies Th that that was the the wire system and i mean because i don't need to explain how dramatically it's changed from then to today uh, there's a couple other examples today data around crop condition scores pace of harvest it, it's all over it's it's instant but back in those decades, I'll, I'll pick on the 70s and 80s again, that wasn't the case. And so the way da data was generated back then, merchants and traders would literally get into helicopters and fly over the fields and look at the pace of harvest, how much of the field had been harvested. And they'd also try to anticipate if the crop was going to be a bumper crop, if it was in good or bad shape. That, that's a second example. The last is just data around actual global trade. And this one really hits home for me. When I was growing up in elementary school, I had a phone, a rotary telephone in my room. And every once in a while, the phone would ring in the middle of the night, 3 a.m. I would hear the phone. My dad would pick up the telephone and it would either be Tokyo calling or what he told me later, the bear was moving. 
Uh, if it was Tokyo calling, it was Japan bidding for soybeans, for physical soybeans. And the bear moving meant Russia was bidding for grain. So back in that era, Russia wasn't a big exporter. They were actually a big importer of grains. And so in those cases, my dad would drive into the office, hop onto the telex wire system, and begin the dialogue with colleagues. So th th those three examples, it's, it's almost funny to talk about those situations today with how dramatically things have changed with computers, mobile phones, and probably even social media. The, the kernel, as you said, is the same today as it was back then. What we've sort of had is the the speed of transmission, right? Almost immediacy of, of data available. Also, the the amplification of the number of sources of data. So, you know, you know, now, as you mentioned, right, rather than flying over in helicopters, you've got drones, you've got satellite imagery, and actually you've got a plethora of vendors globally, and you just have to go to any commodity conference to get a sense of it, you know, who are setting themselves up to be able to provide this data, whether it's shipping data, crop data, whatever it might be, which, you know, if you were a trader 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and you had access to it, it could have given you an tremendous edge. And indeed, that was the edge that many of the large trading houses had, because they, they were the only ones that had that data. So today, we sit in a world where a lot of this data is democratized, it's available to lots of people, it's typically a lot cheaper. And that data is available almost instantaneously. We're going to sort of build up to this. But there is this sense that, you know, over the last 20 years, there are proprietary sources of data, key assets or, or insight that a particular firm might own or hold, that still gives them some edge. Can you sort of help us tease apart kind of, I guess, that journey of data and how now it's so much more freely available and, and obviously we know how quickly it's trans transmitted, but also how organizations have built asset footprints or whatever it might be that gives them an edge in the commodity trading world that is so efficient? I think you're, you're partially alluding to the physical supply chain and being a part of the physical supply chain and the types of data that can be generated. I think before I jump into that, one point that I'll bring up from your examples, the number of vendors has multiplied. Just the supply of data generally is massive. It's doubling every couple of years. So there's probably an argument to be made that there's too much data. And, and what I would say is the ability to have a long time series of data and be able to use that in a, a controlled environment where the, the models that you're using to try to get the best value from the data can be consistent, that's of huge value. So the examples that I gave you from the 70s and 80s, uh, we have examples where data that's taken from there is similar enough that we can actually use it today. And then you've got a historical time series that go back that goes back decades. A lot of the data that's being produced today, it is instant, it is transmitted, but that the context of history is missing. And I, I think that's a really uh, important piece of the analysis to find value in data. Yeah, that's 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 actually fascinating, isn't it? Because you know some of this what we're discussing here, and let's move on to physical assets because we can trace 
the commodity trading world, you know, you've got a couple of routes available to you. One, of course, is to lean into physical assets that give you key strategic advantages in in information or in controlling a given supply chain. Or you've seen in the financial world, you just drive such huge scale in databases in sort of creating a virtual physical world that you can make those predictive trades uh, that, w- that will pay off. And we've seen some hedge funds do that. And again, though, those have been 10, 20 year missions for those organizations. But staying on the physical asset piece, can you just give us some sense of, of how that would manifest itself? How how does having a physical asset derive proprietary data? And then there's also this key part as well, which is you've got to recognize that that asset is producing data and figure out how to capture it. So I think being a part of the physical supply chain, I'm I'm completely biased, but being a part of the physical supply chain, I do think is important and offers a perspective that matters for merchandising, trading, and uh, analysis. But I think on its own, being a part of the supply chain is not important enough. And uh, I'll explain that. If if you believe that ultimately the price of a uh, of a commodity, that price discovery, is going to be established in the physical markets. So in agricultural markets, you own exchange traded traded futures. You have the ability to either take or make uh, delivery at the end of the futures contract. Taking or making delivery ultimately of a buyer or seller, and you have a price that's established. And so that's a physical trade that establishes that price. And so again, if that is your belief that that at the end, that physical transaction uh, establishes the price, then being a part of a physical supply chain for sure have some benefits. But the time frame I think is really important. So if we're talking about the life of a physical exchange traded commodity, that's multiple years from the beginning of the contract opening until the delivery and the physical expiration, it can be as much as two to even three years. The, the, the period day by day during that time, there is a lot of volatility that happens in markets that has nothing to do with physical supply chain. So I said being a part of the physical supply chain is not enough on its own. What, what you also need is the ability to be able to anticipate volatility that's happening on a day-to-day or even minute-to-minute basis. And the way that that occurs can be completely outside of the physical supply chain. It can be from things like bids and offers and tick data that's available from the exchanges. It can be from tick, from technicals. There's a lot of different factors that have nothing to do with physical supply chains that impact day-to-day volatility in price. And so in my mind, it's the ability to be able to manage both of those, understand the physical supply chain physical assets, physical trade that's happening, but also be able to time and size your your strategies and positions accordingly so that the day-to-day volatility that's caused outside of that supply chain is not forcing you out of those positions. Marrying those two is, I think, uh, the most effective strategy. Which is very difficult to pull off, right? <laughs> Just as I think about our work within the, the talent aspect to this, you know, you've got multiple steps there. Firstly, of course, you know, you've got to be able to identify and, you know, what data is crucial 
with regards to your your physical footprint what does it generate that is you know a competitive advantage compared to others and obviously you've got to be capturing that for a significant period of time to build up a valuable data set to actually be able to provide the context you spoke about but then you you need this combination of the the commercial the trading mindset to be married to the technical capability to be able to process all these different forms of data to provide meaningful insight that from our discussions previously right is both sort of accurate and timely can you give us some sense there's a lot in that question but some sense about you know is that a, is that a fair description and and how do you actually go about delivering and capturing this data such that it becomes a strategic asset for your company rather than just lots of information you know lots of data stuck on a stuck on a hard drive somewhere i'm going to i'm going to answer the the very last part of your of your question paul that's the part that i i think i followed uh, clearly and i think it's i think it's two steps so how a company can uh, utilize data, find value in data, that, that's what I'm going to answer. And the, the two steps that I think matter are, number one, being able to aggregate and organize the data that you have available. That's number one. And number two is the ability to be able to use that supply of data to create value. And so I'll try to step into each one of those. The, the, the first piece of um, being able to organize is, it, it sounds really easy and it's extremely difficult to actually execute. So for us, we've got dozens of businesses and we operate in uh, over 70 different countries. So imagine trying to aggregate handwritten notes, Excel files. I mean, there, there is valuable data that is littered all over the environment. And so the ability to gather that, to have different operating systems, talk to one another, create a pool uh, of data, a supply of data that can even be accessed, that is by far the most important step. The second piece then is once you have a supply of data, having it organized in a way where it can be easily transmitted and used is a big part of finding that value and data that matters for things like sustainability and traceability could be significantly different than data that a trader or merchandiser wants and so having a a group or a team that is specifically working with the data and the different businesses understands the commercial needs is that intermediary between the commercial teams and that pool of data to help transmit, to help analyze, then ultimately that makes it easier to be able to find value in that data. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because there are lots of organizations at the moment, and, and this is my opinion and insight from the work that HC Group does, 
who are, you know, large corporations, industrials on any given part of the supply chain, particularly in energy, who are building supply and optimization businesses, commercial businesses that enable them to navigate the energy transition, getting close to their customers, manage crucially the volatility that's out there and the volatility both, I guess, in pathways as well as in prices and capture value. And the fascinating, I guess, in this sort of the more philosophical aspect of this discussion is that transformative mindset of saying, okay, we we actually, this organization knows a lot of things. It's about how do you categorize it, collate it and and access it that's sort of the key bit and this plays into you know what is sort of the heart of this discussion which is fascinating is Cargill quite some time ago essentially designating data as a strategic asset and I'd love to get sort of your take on how that then cascaded through the business and changed both the approach to collection and to utilization and then we'll come on to your business and what you're doing with it within Cargill but can you just give us some sense of how that recognition transformed the organization? Yeah it it was a little less than a decade ago Cargill did declare data as a strategic asset and it was a, a purposeful decision and Cargill makes all efforts to protect and leverage its strategic assets. So from the data standpoint, what that meant was uh, things like data governance and data stewardship became very, very important. And I realize that's maybe not a a sexy topic to talk about, but if you think about it in the context of what I said before, being able to form a supply of data and then being able to get that data into the right groups to create value process is uh, is very important. And so the data governance, things like data security and data privacy are very important or critical in what we do uh, with, with our data. The data stewardship, really what that means is that at Cargill, it's very important that our word is our bond and that we have the trust of external customers and partners. And so from a stewardship, being able to set up what the expectations are, not only internally for us, but to be able to meet the needs of our customers, that was uh, extremely important. I think from, from that point of establishing governance and stewardship, we, we also tried to uh, leverage data to do things like attract talent So the ability to come inside of Cargill, have access to all of the data that is generated and solve non-trading really big, important challenges in the world like sustainability, that can be very attractive in recruiting uh, people to come work for Cargill. On the trading side, it's the ability, Paul, you mentioned before in the previous question, I, I sort of heard you talk about the difference between a discretionary and a systematic trader, being able to understand some of the fundamental discretionary uh, dynamics in the market, but at the same time, data to uh, do things like create systematic strategies. And having the ability to have somebody come inside of Cargill and have them be able to use data to create both data that can be used for systematic strategies, but also used for discretionary 
fundamental trading. That's the balance that I was speaking about earlier, where you rely on the physical supply chain. You rely on understanding fundamentals and fundamental supply and demand, but you respect and maybe even have the ability to take advantage of data that can help you anticipate systematic moves and volatility caused by systematic trading, uh, quantitative trading in our markets. It's probably a separate podcast, but one we've actually had a, a couple you know, discussions we've had a couple of times on this podcast through our, our many episodes about the talent piece to this, right? Because again, like I said earlier, this is, you know, it, it does take a long time to, to shift these mindsets and put in place the processes and the structures and the people to be able to capitalize on this. But what's fascinating to me about this is I assume that once you've declared as a strategic asset, that also changes the nature of how you 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 think about, I guess, future acquisitions, alliances, and so forth, because suddenly alongside ROI, you know, investment return, you're also thinking about how does this new asset or company or whatever it might be play into our data as one of our key strategic assets? Yeah, I think that's right, Paul. The ability, though, to be able to use data to inform decisions, whether it's purchasing physical assets, M&A, or just trading, you, you still need a blend of data and experience. And a product of Cargill declaring data as a strategic asset, there were many products, but one was the, the group specific inside of Cargill that handles and transmits and analyzes all of Cargill's proprietary data, as well as public data that we feel is, is important. And so there, there's a group of analysts and data scientists that are all over the world that have the express purpose of being able to take the data that Cargill's generating in and blending it with what's important outside of the world of Cargill and feeding that into Cargill businesses, whether it's trading, whether it's physical assets. And I, I would say we've got, Cargill has almost 160 years worth of experience. And so that experience still beating the guiding light of decisions, but now we have the ability to use not only our data, but other sources of data to increase the confidence of decisions that are being made. Yeah, it comes back to that, you know, the uh, the time series as well, uh, available to an organization that is that, is that old. Okay, so declaring data as a strategic asset almost a decade ago, and, and building these competencies to both capture it, transform it into useful information, and and disseminate it, and then Again, other businesses have done somewhat similar, right? And orientating the whole business towards the value of data and, and really, you know, that is a core competency. You and your business have gone, to my mind, sort of one step further and said, well, look, if this is valuable internally. There's a value to it externally to our, our core partners. And that's quite a diverse set of companies that could find this information valuable. Can you just frame up what you're doing in Cargill and give us some examples of the types of organizations that this information is valuable to? Our business, my my business, the, the business that I lead, we're a byproduct also of Cargill making data a strategic asset. So we have uh, the mandate to leverage data and information that's inside of Cargill and find value for external customers and external partners. 
And that that's all that we do. We've got quite a bit of experience in leveraging Cargill's data and information in commodity markets. Now, that's not just agriculture. It can also be metals and energy markets. We, we do have experience with Cargill's IP data that uh, it can also be valuable in other risk assets, mainly in equities. And we're focused on growing the equities piece of our business with, uh, with external customers. Outside of trading, there's also examples, probably the best is around supply chain. So leveraging logistics and transportation data, we can help customers of Cargill better manage and anticipate their supply chain. That would probably be the best non-trading example. Fascinating. And I imagine there's a bit of a fine balance there between obviously the desire and the need to protect the data that is the lifeblood of of any trading organization and then the opportunity to to share that with other organizations for whom as you've highlighted whether they're equity traders or or private equity groups or whatever it might be it's incredibly valuable and not available elsewhere it's the the data that could provide you the edge because it's not democratized yeah, absolutely I mean, most important in this entire conversation from from my perspective is the ability for Cargill to be able to leverage and find value in its own in its own data that then will extend into external customers but we in no way want to give away a competitive advantage that Cargill uh, has so believe me I mean, we've been we've been in business for 5 years it's very much viewed that our business is supplemental there are non competitive ways there's a lot of them where we can use proprietary data inside of Cargill create value for a customer, whether it's in trading, financial services, or food and feed supply chains without giving away Cargill's edge. Our, our business is very much supplemental, not competitive to Cargill proper. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's just turn in the last couple of minutes towards the future. Talked a lot about this sort of the, the journey that data and data being transformed into information has gone on. And especially I think is relevant to these organizations that are thinking about or in the midst of building global trading and marketing capabilities, you know, that's sort of the ability to start off and think about data as a strategic asset where, you know, the trend is, is unstoppable, right? In both the speed of transmission, the access to data, the types of sources of data out there as more, you know, the internet of the things drives more and more individual unit data collection whether that's you know the temperature of the of the of the container or what it can take you know and, and is also being increasingly demanded by the financial infrastructure around trading in the in the wake of various scandals and, and missing materials and so forth so you've got this confluence of an ever greater drive to more data more sources of data and, and the immediacy of it being available i assume you for one see that trend rapidly continuing but i guess the corollary to that is it continues to ever more so drive the imperative of having an organization having its own data set that gives it that edge i think that's right what i think is going to happen what's directly in front of us is the the rapid changes that are uh, occurring with data and the use of data they've been noteworthy in my example i i was exaggerating but using an example that happened decades ago and you you talk about what it was like decades ago versus today and you say oh my gosh that's incredible well i i think that that feeling saying oh my gosh that's incredible 
because we were doing things like this in the past, I think that's going to happen not every decade, but now every couple of years. That's the biggest transformation that I see happening is we're going to continually surprise ourselves with the way that data overall is being aggregated, organized, and analyzed. And I think there's going to be two big areas where I see that happening. One I alluded to earlier, and I mentioned sustainability generally, but I think specifically traceability in, in looking at the food supply chain and all of the data that is going to be collected. So a person that is eating a meal anywhere knows exactly where their food came from, from the time it was in the ground till it hit their plate. That's one frontier that I see happening pretty closely to directly in front of us. The second and closer to our world of commodity markets, the agriculture and energy transition. Agriculture being used as a feedstock in energy for decarbonization and other purposes. That is going to have massive implications for agriculture. The world of agriculture is so small in terms of energy. And the implications of uh, mandates, whether from government or companies, around things like sustainable airline fuel, those types of, of changes and the implications that the market's going to have, the ability to see that, have data confirming hypotheses that are happening in that transition, I think is going to be critically important going forward. Yeah, and it also touches on a theme that we've discussed on this podcast, most notably and recently with Robert Berendez, you know, of this this amount of data and the granularity of the data also starts to change the nature of commodity trading by decommoditizing it, right? You know, that need for traceability and for attributes to be captured, as well as provenance and sustainability being presumably key going forwards to consumers. This, we can only expect there to be more and more data in it going from kind of the bulk level down to the, the plant level, even to the genetic level, or whatever commodity your, your choice is, right? I mean, that's certainly a trend that seems emergent and, and coming over the next 10 years. For sure. I mean, it's a question of, is there, you know, is there too much or too little data? And I feel like that's a loaded question today. It's like asking artificial intelligence is good or bad. I don't know. My answer around the data that's being generated is I would rather that there is too much being generated, too much supply, than the, the onus is on the user to find value. So having an oversupply situation, I think is okay. It just makes the challenge of going in and being able to do the two things that we spoke about before, aggregate, organize a pool, and then use that pool to create value. That makes it more difficult. And so the ability of a product line manager, an analyst, or a trader to go in and find the data in that mass of supply of data, find the data that is the most important and the most valuable, that's the trick. Yeah, and that's where there is the competition for talent, right? Both on those on the commercial side, leaders and traders, for example, who can articulate uh, and and work with the data scientists to to identify key sources of data and information that does make an, an edge and and find the common language to do that. And on the flip side, the data scientists, the, the technologists that are able to actually you know work with those huge volumes of data and generate what is actually relevant and needed in a timely fashion, that for sure is a, a category of of individuals that are in high demand from not only just 
your standard commodity traders, but also hedge funds, and again, these organizations that are trying to build this capability. So it's, it very much is, and all these stories are, also one of talent. But uh, Jason, it's been really, really insightful having you on. We'll put links to your your business in the show notes, and you know I hope to have you back on in the future, and we can continue to discuss this this ongoing trend. But I think uh, you probably provided some new new terms and some new thinking to some organisations out there in this discussion. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.